This podcast is brought to you by the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University. Learn more about our work, including our taught postgraduate programmes in gender, conflict, transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk. Good afternoon, everyone, wherever you are tuning from. Uh, you're all very much welcome uh, to this webinar this afternoon. And for me, it's actually to thank all of you and to welcome you into this afternoon webinar. Um, the, the webinar, which is on Ireland and women security, agenda, uh, we'll learn in the next one and a half hours. As you, uh, you may know or you may not know, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Salome Bugwa and I live and work in Ireland. And my connections with the Women, Peace and Security goes back a long way back in 2009 when I started working with refugees women who had actually come from conflict um, countries living in Ireland now because we have many of them. And I ran the Migrant Women's Network in Ireland. I'm also a commissioner. I sit in the Commission for Irish Human Rights here in Ireland. And I was also the chair uh, of the working group in the development of Ireland, that national action plan on women, peace and security. So my understanding of women, peace and security is really embedded on my work on the ground, my engagement with the women from the grassroots. I like working with women on the grassroots. And I also researched as part of my PhD, doctoral research, which I finished um, this year. I researched on integrating women into peace building and actually taking a focus group or a focus with women from Democratic Republic of Congo. And I just because, before I go in depth, I just want to say out of that research, I learned the importance of localizing the WPS or Women, Peace and Security Agenda. Because most of the time women on the ground do not actually get to understand the reality or get the reality of Women, Peace and Security Agenda. And their voices yet are very important and must be heard. So the, the localizing of that agenda is very important. Also, the whole area of protection and participation came in as a huge um, element of my research, that when we talk about participation of women, we also have to, be, to bear in mind how they need to be protected, to speak out, to be able to challenge the inequality and whatever is happening on the ground. And that goes hand in hand with participation. Participation and protection, indeed, are key pillars and this are, this are the center of the WPS agenda itself. Um, so this afternoon, I won't talk more about the WPS because that's what you're going to talk about. So we'll hear from our speakers this afternoon. Um, is to say that Ireland has made WPS a key focus of its foreign policy and its tenure on the UN Security Council, including through taking up the role of co-chairing the independent expert group on women, peace, and security. It does so at a time when the dynamic on the council presents clear obstacle to advancing and protecting progress on the WPS agenda. These discussions will explore opportunity for Ireland to influence, advance, and strengthen the women, peace, and security agenda through a discussion of key country context and themes. Today, we are pleased to have phenomenal women who understand about the WPS very well. So we have uh, four speakers, five speakers actually. Uh, we have uh, uh, Onya Hans, who is the Director of Conflict Resolution Unit, Department of Foreign Affairs. 
We have Madeleine Lee, who is Security General of the Women International League for Women, Peace and Freedom. We also have Holia Mosadik, and I'll be introducing them properly with their, with their biography from Afghanistan, Afghan human rights activist and executive director of Conflict Analysis Network. We also have Asitan Diaro, who is the president of the Association of Association de Femme Africans uh, from Mali. And finally, we also hear from Linda Cabrera, who is director of Sisma Maju Corporation in Colombia. Today's event has been organized by the Irish Peace and Conflict Network, a network from across the peace building, humanitarian development, and research sector on the island who come together to discuss on how Ireland can be a voice for peace on the international stage. To learn more about the network or to join or any information on future events, you can actually contact the network and we have a Gmail which will be put on the chat now. So you can actually follow that on the chat. A final note on the logistics and format, please note that today event is on the record and is being recorded now as we, we speak. Please note that translation is available in English and in Spanish. Please click on the grab icon in your Zoom menu and select preferred language to avail of this. So you'll see the grab on top of your Zoom. The event, as I mentioned earlier, will run for 90 minutes. We'll begin by hearing from each speaker before moving to question and answers. Attendees can build their, can submit their questions using the questions and answer functions on your screen. Please remember to include your name and affiliation with your questions. So now, without further ado, let me move to our speakers and hear from them. Each of the speakers will have seven to maximum 10 minutes to just give their remark. I will start with Onya Hans, whom I know and have worked with very well while developing the third National Action Plan on Women's Peace and Security for Ireland. So like I mentioned earlier, Onya is the director of the Conflict Resolution Unit in the Department of Foreign Affairs with the responsibility for Ireland National Action Plan on United Nations Security Council Resolution 1325, or what we call Women, Peace and Security. Onya led on the development of the the Ireland Third National Action Plan. The unit is also involved in promoting peace building and lessons sharing from the Northern Ireland. Peace processes and global peace building. Onya has also served as an ambassador of Ireland to Malawi and prior to that as head of mission at the Irish Embassy in Kampala, which is in Uganda. While there, she chaired the Partners for Good Governance Group made up of key bilateral donors to Uganda, including the United Nations. Onya, you are very much welcome to please make your remarks. Thank you very much indeed, Salome. And good afternoon to everyone who's attending this webinar today. Firstly, I would like to thank Dr. Odad and the Irish Peace and Conflict Network for the invite to join today's panel. We are always happy to engage with stakeholders, policymakers, and academics to discuss the work of Ireland and how we are using our position on the Security Council to advocate for a more equal world. 
As I'm sure the other panelists and many of those watching will be aware, Ireland has been a long-standing champion of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda at the UN. And it is, as Salome has said, a key priority for our two-year membership of the Security Council. Ireland has been recognised as a leading voice on WPS at the Security Council as a result of our consistent and committed approach to ensuring that the critical role of women in peace, security and governance is emphasised at every opportunity and that the views of women peacebuilders inform our policy positions and statements. At our work on the Council, Ireland seeks to advance the WPS agenda across all of the Council's work. This includes country, thematic and peacekeeping files, as well as through ongoing engagement with civil society groups. Through all negotiations with other member states, Ireland works to defend and secure strengthened language on WPS across geographic and thematic files. We have successfully negotiated the inclusion of strengthened WPS language in peacekeeping mandates, including those for Cyprus, South Sudan, Mali and others. Once language is agreed in, say, these resolutions, it assists us in other areas. If you could bear with me for just one moment, the interpretation channel is on, just on mine, and I just want to uh, take it off for the moment. Apologies. Okay, sorry about that. Just to continue, on the Security Council, we aim to demonstrate how women can be agents of change in conflict and post-conflict settings by bringing these women to the table. And in this regard, as Salome has made reference to, Ireland co-chairs, along with Mexico, the informal expert group on WPS. This is a working group of the Security Council on the WPS agenda. The role allows us to have close engagement with senior leadership at the UN missions um, and in monitoring their actions to implement the WPS agenda on the ground and in specific country contexts. And I think this is really key. It also facilitates the enhanced flow of information and analysis in these countries to the Security Council. So far this year, since we took up our membership and co-chairing with Mexico, the IEG has convened meetings to discuss the WPS agenda in Libya, Mali, South Sudan, Yemen and Lebanon. And indeed, another meeting on Somalia is scheduled to take place today. Ireland engages with civil society ahead of these meetings and uh, through the uh, NGO working group in New York, but also here in Ireland through consultations which are being led by the Irish Consortium for Gender-Based Violence. This contact is critical to ensuring that we understand the lived experiences of women and can use our seat at the Security Council to ensure that their voices are heard. However, this can also bring with it some risks and indeed, we do have to be careful that those who brief the council do not fall harm to reprisals, and we must work with civil society to overcome this. Our seat on the council also allows Ireland to bring attention to specific issues that are central to the WPS agenda. Back on the 8th of March, which was International Women's Day, uh, Ireland co-hosted an ARIA formula meeting uh, called, entitled rather, Call to Lead by Example ensuring the full, equal and meaningful participation of women in UN-led peace processes. This meeting, which was co-sponsored by 12 UN Security Council member states, communicated clearly to the United Nations 
that stronger leadership is required to ensure direct and substantive participation of women in peace or political processes, which it leads or which it co-leads. The UN should lead by example, and that is what we were putting across at that ARIA Formula meeting. Also ahead of the open debate on conflict-related sexual violence in April, Ireland organised a briefing between members of the Council and the Office of the Special Representative of the Secretary-General on Sexual Violence. And this was to shine a light on the deeply worrying situation in Tigray. And Ireland is keeping a close watch on this situation as it develops. Then in May, Ireland facilitated a briefing in conjunction with the NGO Working Group and WPS, which I mentioned earlier, which also briefs the IEG, to the Security Council members. And this was by Palestinian women civil society leaders who were able to give an update on how recent events were impacting on women on the ground. And indeed, just last week, Minister Coveney spoke at the quarterly UNSC briefing on the situation in Afghanistan. In his remarks, the minister highlighted the severe underrepresentation of women in the Afghan peace process, which in its substance must also protect the rights of women. And he reaffirmed that women's rights cannot be the price of peace in Afghanistan. But as Salome has referred to also, there are many challenges and we are now tw over 20 years into the WPS agenda and we still have an awful lot to do. So Ireland's work to advance the agenda has been greatly aided by close collaboration with like-minded member states and on the Security Council, such as Norway and Mexico, and working together to achieve incremental progress on WPS language in mandates and products of the Council. Again, I think it's really important that the narrative of WPS goes right across all of the briefs and countries uh, on the Security Council so that it becomes the norm that when you're looking at a council product, you need to see that WPS has been mentioned there and has been taken note of. And it's not just pure words, but there are actions to follow. If this is, sorry, it is this incremental progress then that is most important, as I've said, as each improvement of agreed language in one resolution or mandate allows Ireland to build on WPS elements in other products and other countries too, to follow suit on this. This work is at times painstaking, but Ireland's team in New York are committed to it at every level, including among senior leadership and across the geographic desks. We're also committed to it at HQ, I might add as well. And certainly in the Conflict Resolution Unit, where I'm the director, it is quite takes up quite a lot of our time and it is something that we really are pushing for the last number of years, but particularly through our, our representation on the council. Another development we have noticed is that member states who had not engaged extensively with WPS in the past are beginning to uh, do so, notably in the informal expert group on WPS. And this engagement, while welcome, it also poses some challenges as approaches to WPS sometimes differ to that of Ireland and other like-minded member states. And we need to be conscious of this. Ireland, as you are aware, has always adopted a rights-based approach to WPS, whereas some other countries approach it from a development and economic empowerment angle. Ireland has been steadfast and consistent in making the point that women fundamentally deserve to have their voices heard in all discussions that will have an impact on their lives. Simply put, it is their right. And for Ireland, I have to say the WPS agenda is also very personal. We have seen on this island the important role that the Women's Coalition played in the Northern Ireland peace process and the benefits of their input into the Good Friday Agreement, which hold to this day. We have lived it. There is also hope for the future that with the promotion of the WPS agenda on the Security Council, more member states become active advocates for WPS. And importantly, these are not from one geographic or cultural background, 
but represent the diversity of the UN itself. For example, UNSC, as we call it, members such as Vietnam, Niger and St. Vincent and the Grenadines are supporting the WPS agenda at the Council. And when we held our ARIA formula meeting, it was co-sponsored by 12 of the 15 member states. Maintaining and building upon this cross-regional support for the agenda will be critical in advancing the agenda going forward. I would like to say that Ireland will remain committed to this in its stewardship of the WPS agenda through our engagement at the Council and at all multilateral fora, ensuring a consistent and strong approach to advancing the rights of women across the board. I will conclude by returning to the guiding question posed and to reassure you that Ireland will continue to influence, advance and strengthen the WPS agenda by ensuring it remains a priority in all our engagements at the Security Council and by using our position as co-chair of the IEG on WPS and our membership of different networks to ensure the voices of women are heard at every level. I'd finally, I'd like to thank you for this opportunity to put um, our positions across to you and we'll be happy to take questions in the Q&A session. So thank you very much indeed, Salome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Onya. I think uh, within just 10 minutes, you have given us quite a lot. Salome, uh, you're on mute. Uh, can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Yes, Salome. C can you hear me? You can hear me, okay. So sorry about that. I, I was just saying that, uh, that I was thanking you for the for that input for 10 minutes, which was actually very good, but also very much in details on what Ireland is doing. And just to say that Ireland has a huge opportunity to influence things at the UN level based on the ending of the conflict in Northern Ireland, but also based on the you know the input that women from Ireland have given and the connection of Ireland with uh, international NGOs which are working overseas and especially also with your work with the observatory team. I really like, you know, bringing those voices of women, which is very key and very important, at least ensuring that women are at the table, because we would really like to hear that. And in particular, women from Afghan, uh, they all need to be on the table. Um, I move to our next speaker, who is Madeline Lee. So I welcome her as well. She's the Secretary General of the Women International League for Peace and Freedom. Madeline has been the Secretary General since 2010. She began her career as a lawyer in 1990. And in 1998, she started working as the head of office in Bosnia as a gender expert for the Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights. From September 2006 to April 2010, she served as the head of Women's Rights and Gender Unit for the OHCHR, one of the major elements of our work was to demonstrate the import of gender and how law should accurately describe and do justice to those different experiences. Madeline, please, you have 10 minutes maximum. Thank you, and thank you so much. Just to say, it's an, it's an open secret that Wilf was celebrating when Ireland got onto the Security Council. We really wish we could clone you. Um, good partners and allies in the whole women, peace and security and delivery of it. I have 10 minutes. I want to talk about the importance of the Women, Peace and Security agenda and how to do it. I want to have a quick look at country-specific examples. I want to talk about system coherence, a little bit on counterterrorism, and then, of course, we have to deal with the arms trade and militarism. So I'll have to speak very quickly. So if I am going too fast interpreter, please let me know. 
Um, Wilf has always wanted to make, and now we have to reclaim the United Nations as a peace organization, not one which is just organizing the geopolitical manifestations of capitalism and militarism. Um, so as an entry point, we thought it'd be, I thought it'd be useful if we look at how peacekeeping operations are not necessarily helpful in bringing peace, because as they are the emanation of the United Nations Security Council resolutions on their mandates, we wanted to look from the, up, the upgo how much of that actually reflects the women, peace and security agenda. Um, and so we looked at, we have done a report with the London School of Economics to try and see why it was the incredible work of the NGO working group of those in New York pushing to get good language into mandates that actually brought women into peace processes and guided the UN in how it should be doing both its mediation, its process delivery, and the inclusion of you know, how to do transformative justice. Um, and lo and behold, the report showed quite clearly that once it had left, the words had left the chamber of the Security Council, they just got dissipated. And you know, really it's, it's tantamount to a complete betrayal of everything it was, you know, the, everything that we were promising, that was being promised to women about inclusion, about the full participation. Just a simple example, in Yemen, there are 13 uh, mandate renewals, 13 resolutions. There's three re specific references to women, peace and security. One of them urges the Secretary General to have, um, all parties in the Secretary General to include work done to ensure the participation of women in his reports. Never happened. Never happened. No accountability. Didn't matter. And the reason for that is that the UN agencies, the Special Envoys Office, did not prioritize it, did not see it as being necessary, despite the fact that in that particular resolution, it was there. There is no excuse that the Secretary General's report does not have that within it because we have the role of the briefers. The briefers come to the Security Council to inform the Security Council of the situation on the ground. And that has not been included almost in any single um, resolution changing the mandate or renewing mandate. So what we, as a result, we end up with militarized peacekeeping, absent agenda analysis. And if we're lucky, we get projects delivered in order to increase usually women's participation in the security sector, in particular in the military, which is not what the women, peace and security was all about. And then you have the bigger picture. You have militarized security, which is mainly men, mainly going, going into areas where there is still conflict and hence the changing the name actually giving more agency to the peacekeepers to implement peace or to operationalize peace which is a bit worrying and so you have many men going in with arms with money with the ability to influence what is happening in situ not just in terms of peace but in terms of the whole political economy of the country they are going into classic example haiti where you know after how many years of presence of the UN uh, peacekeeping troops we're still in a situation where sexual exploitation, children born of sexual exploitation, legal frameworks impossible to navigate for those women who are seeking justice against the, the UN and the peacekeepers for the abuses that they have suffered. 16 billion pumped in, and still women are forced to, do, to sell sex as a means of survival. What is wrong with that picture? We have an economic distortion caused by the gendered nature of the peacekeeping and the demand, the economic demands, which we would now uh, probably call the marketization of the militarized project. And that is 
is, is absolutely significant in peacekeeping when you have so much money being pumped into the countries. There's wonderful research done on Haiti, wonderful research done on DRC, as I'm sure you know, Salome, um, exposing just how this works. So what would it look like if we did it differently? Um, if we ensured there was prior consultation with women on the ground as to what do you need in a mandate? What is this prevention of future conflict? What does it look like if it were done from the bottom up? And how could you use the multilateral system in a way which is actually beneficial? We have language. We could translate what it is they're saying through the language of the Women, Peace and Security um, resolutions. And then what we need is strong feedback um, via the, the Secretary General's report, compelling the way in which the United Nations agencies who were responsible for the implementation of these mandates actually do their work and then report back. So we do actually have this continuity, a sort of circle, a feedback circle. Um, and also we need to rethink peacekeeping. When I talk about militarized peacekeeping, is that the best way to build peace? We had the examples of Legion. It has not worked anywhere, which is why so many peacekeeping um, arrangements are still in place after decades. And the money that is spent on them is phenomenal. What if we pump that into countries where we fund the women peace builders? Those who are really working on human rights, who know how to do it at community level and give them the support to make it happen. What would it look like? And we're proposing a symposium later this year to really put all cards on the table and to have a serious analysis of how peacekeeping works. There is an opportunity coming up, and this is a shamelessly lobbying Ireland to, to support with. Um, Yemen is going to be this, the renewal of the mandate for Yemen is coming up. Peace Track Initiative yesterday and the day before launched their, um, their roadmap for a feminist peace. And um, they will be presenting at the Security Council. And we need support for its implementation. It really is a very detailed feminist understanding and analysis of what is going on inside Yemen, how it can be addressed. There's going to be a new envoy. We need a new envoy that's going to understand the necessity of addressing the concerns raised within the roadmap and implementing them. We need a feminist for a change. We have enough of the old school guys coming around and doing the same old, same old. We need to have someone who understands the whole spectrum of gender analysis and making sure that women's rights are actually included across the board. Same Palestine. And this is an example of how we can get system-wide coherence. Impossible to get any sort of UN Security Council um, action when it comes to Israel-Palestine. That we know, that's one of the difficulties you highlighted on um, So good that the focus was pushed back to the Human Rights Council, where we have a very good commission of inquiry uh, mandate, um, including on addressing gender and disarmament. Now that information that comes from there can be used to support information to the Security Council so that there can be better discussions as to what could be done, informed, not necessarily through a Security Council resolution, but informed. So in fact, if you look at the system, Security Council resolutions must have women, peace and security resolutions within them, with country-specific um, country mandates must have that drawing on information from the Human Rights Council and the reports of civil society and the reports from treaty bodies and the Euro, uh, universal periodic reviews, which comes from this side of the pond. Pull those in and then you've got a rights-based uh, um, approach analyzed through uh, and the lens of assuring equality with also, because we've insisted on it, looking at arms trading within those, within those outcomes from the various human rights bodies. The implementation should come through the United Nations partnering with civil society 
organizations. So good mandate, good language, implementation through the ways I've already described. And then you can have monitoring pushed back again in the cycle of treaty body reporting, universal periodic re review reporting, with a demand for accountability within all of that. And there must, and to say again, in each of those things, there must be the disarmament focus, there must be attention paid to arms trading and the role of the arms trade treaty and the legal obligations flowing from that. Um, arms traders being the biggest one, you know, the P5 being the biggest arms traders and sitting in the Security Council, so good luck with taking them on, but very, very important that we do. And the other part that, and I know I don't need to raise it with you, is this counter-terrorism started with the war on terrorism, which is now distorting the budget of the United Nations and indeed the approaches to peacekeeping and the mandates given, because nearly in all operations, we do have that sort of counter-terrorism, counter-insurgency factor, which helps to militarize the state even further. Now, Fianula has done such brilliant work on this. I, won't, I don't need to raise the point she raises over and over again, but she needs such support in being able to ensure that what she's saying is heard and acted upon by member states. So essentially, fundamental rethink of peacekeeping in all its works, the need to actually join all the different parts together so that they fit from the different parts of the, the mechanisms, the Human Rights Council, the General Assembly, the Security Council, the role of the agencies, the role of the Secretary General in making sure the agencies do what they are supposed to be doing, the role of envoys and how they must be held accountable for their implementation of the, the agenda, and then how to use the national action plans, which Ireland is doing, in bringing coherence between domestic policy and international approaches, including from human rights law. So I could talk for hours about all of these because it's so important that we get this right because we haven't so far. And yet I think having Ireland on the Security Council with allies like Norway, there is a possibility now of being able to work with us to actually achieve far more of the implementation of the agenda. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so so much, Madeline. We will definitely come back to you because you have raised uh, a few key good points there. Um, and so we will definitely uh, come back to you. But just to say and to mention very quickly to people who are listening that uh, by August 2020, we only had 86 United Nations member state countries who had actually adopted the National Action Plan. We know countries like Ireland are in their third National Action Plan. But the problem with this is that, uh, you know, they have not put budget to implement these plans. And also voices of women and participation of women still remain low. You highlight even some other key concerns like women having to turn to survival mechanism uh, to be able to survive, you know, and also peacekeeping not being helpful. I did like the whole idea of uh, accountability and we'll come back to that. Uh, we are going to move to Asitan Diaro. She's actually our next uh, panelist. So Asitan is the president of AFAD, an international group of the Association of African Women for Research and Development which is an active partner in several Pan-African and international networks. Asitan is a social demographer by trading, and she has a PhD in sociology from Brown University in USA. She works as an independent consultant in the area of capacity building training, modules design, uh, applied research, project planning and monitoring and evaluation, as a feminist and a researcher, uh, she has initiated and directed several research projects on gender and development. Her gender practice include, among others, 
advocacy and lobbying initiative in the form of dissemination of her research findings and public debates, interviews on gender issues in relation to socioeconomic development, governance, conflict management, violence, and peace and security. Asitan, you're very much welcome. You have 10 minutes from now to give us your remarks. Thank you. Merci beaucoup, Madame la Présidente. Um, you will, uh, I will ask people to excuse me for my strong accent. Uh, first of all, I would like to congratulate Ireland and wish it good luck in its presidency of the United Nations Security Council. The question of interest is how can Iran influence, advance, and strengthen the WPS agenda, in particular countries such as the Sahel and Mali in particular, as I see it. For me, it is above all a great opportunity to improve the existing situation and to correct some blunders committed by the international communities in its strategies of assistance and stabilization of the Sahel in crisis situation. Regarding a women's right and in conflict zone of the Sahel, the CSNGO working group on Mali has already recommended that the council adopt gender responsive as part of the language in any future resolution or statement. We back up that because we are in a patriarchal uh, situation where uh, gender responsive is not as obvious as it is elsewhere. Um, throughout the whole Sahelian zone, the population is forced to deal with jihadists in a very weak position. And the jihadists have fixed opinions about women. They should stay inside the house, do not interfere in public life, be covered from head to toe, etc. Compromising with these jihadists comes as a very high cost to women who see themselves stripped of the few rights they have acquired on the civil and even customary level and without any means of recourse or negotiation. Thus, mediation are carried out to the detriment of women's rights, as it is currently the case in Mali under the leadership of the High Islamic Council with the permission of the state authorities. We believe that Ireland could get more WPS relevant part into municipal mandate renewal in 2022. One solution to this is to bring municipal to really protect villages and civilians because despite all the declaration of good faith about militarized security, attacks are almost daily and the localities are almost under siege. In order to go to the field, to graze their animal and to be able to buy supplies at the market, people are forced to make diabolic pact with the, the jihadists. 
And I back up also the concern about the lack of justice afforded to victims and survivors of conflict-related sexual violence in Mali. We call on Minisma to support the Malian authority in urgently prosecuting perpetrators. And we urge the Malian authorities to adopt legislation on sexual and gender-based violence. In addition, we request the documentation of CRSV, meaning conflict-related sexual violence in all its dimensions. We believe that if Ireland enter into dialogue with more social civic uh, society on uh, WPS, that will be a big help. Since, since women association are the one who are making change um, at the level more than the state. I also want to, um, to raise another point that the changing face of displaced population and the displacement of population is also at a higher cost to women and the youth. And we believe that Ireland, um, in, it will be much appreciated if Ireland could influence the Security Council to support more humanitarian and development programming in the state, taking into account that it is less household-based displacement than younger women and uh, young girls' um, internal displaced within the Sahelian zone. Uh, the point I want to make here is that there is a, the, the, that's what I think, and uh, that's how I read from the strategies of UNHCR. They, they base all their strategy on household and household health, thinking that the whole family will move from conflict zone to a peaceful zone. But what is happening now is that girls, because they know they will be kidnapped, women, because they know they might be married to several men, take on themselves to, to do their displacement. So the, the strategy, humanitarian strategy have to take into account this new phase of uh, displaced population from a conflict area and Minispa can help in that, in giving, uh, in giving the right data to uh, the UNCR. I think, Ireland can help in that too. And um, since Ireland is a troop contributing a nation to MINISMA and to a AU training mission in Mali, I think they should get involved uh, also into security debate and try to influence France uh, in his policy and his action in um, Mali militarized security. Um, namely, lately, France have decided to withdraw Barkhan and to uh, put his uh, weight in the new solution called Tapuba, which for Macron will be uh, a European uh, kind of um, militarized security. First, we do think the focus should be on civilian protection. 
the civilian protection should be uh, the priority for MINISMA, for uh, other uh, forces. But second, if we have to have militarized security, then we wanted it to be negotiated with the population, to be understood by the population, to take into account specific need of women and children than Macron and other European uh, anticipating on our need and sending us a Takuba, which will be like a, a, another uh, Barkan. So that too, I think, uh, Ireland can put his weight on, make sure that we are stakeholder in the new solution that they will be offering us. Um, to finish, I, I just want to say that we here on the ground who are activists and actors of change, we, we are like intermediaries between the population who doesn't believe anymore in the international community, uh, a genuine, genuine um, assistance for us. We know the community, the international community cares. We know that the UN Security Council cares, but we want them to uh, lean on the civil society, especially women civil society to get their word crossed to get their assistance crossed. I thank you for your attention. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Asitan. Yeah. Uh, you've actually also brought the voices um, of the women from the ground and what is happening. Where we capture your you know, concern about the insecurity uh, for the civilian and, and for the people living in the village. But you also highlighted very key important issues of lack, lack, lack of justice, especially in terms of conflict-related sexual violence. Uh, and we know, you know, we are aware that there's the problem of immunity and amnesty given to some people who actually perpetrate uh, these crimes of sexual violence. And really looking into that, maybe it's one of the area that IRAD could help with to ensure that, you know, everybody who actually um, get actually into this crime or every perpetrator, regardless of the status in the society, have to be brought before the law or they have to be prosecuted. And that will be very important. Uh, we have actually a day from Holia who have not joined us yet. We are waiting for her to join us. So we will move to Linda. Um, and for all of you, you, you are on top of your Zoom, you see the global because she's going to speak in Spanish. So you can get translated there. You can uh, click there to get it, uh, the translation there. So um, Linda Cablera, is the director of CIS Mayua Cooperation. She's a feminist lawyer, researcher, and litiga lit litigator in cases of violence against women. She has a master's degree from the National University of Colombia and has a postgraduate degree in human rights and women, theory and practice. She was a national delegate to the Committee for the Monitoring of Law 1257 of 2008 on a non-violence against women and technical secretary monitoring the reserved annexes of order 092 of 2008 and 09 of 2015 of the Constitutional Court. On behalf of CISMA and within the Five Claves Alliance, she accompanied the advocacy process in the peace process, advocating for access to justice for women and girls who are victims of sexual violence 
due to armed conflict. She's currently a member of the United Nations Women Colombia Civil Society Advisory Group and a permanent guest by the Women Movement to the National Commission for Security Guarantees. She has published widely on the human rights of women, particularly in relation to violence against women. I welcome Linda to give us her presentation. Thank you, Linda, and you're welcome. Muchas gracias. Eh, buenas tardes a quienes se encuentran en el otro lado del mundo. Buenos días desde Colombia. Eh, un agradecimiento especial por la invitación a participar a, a la organización Cisma Mujer, una organización feminista que trabaja por la defensa de los derechos humanos de las mujeres y las niñas en el país hace más de 20 años. Eh, yo quisiera aprovechar estos minutos que gentilmente me han ofrecido para compartir nuestras reflexiones sobre por qué el mandato de seguridad eh, de Mujeres Paz y Seguridad es tan importante para la protección integral de los derechos de las mujeres en contextos de conflicto armado y de construcción de paz, como es el caso colombiano. Recordemos brevemente que el Consejo de Seguridad ha insistido mucho en la participación de las mujeres en la construcción de paz, no solo en, en, en la formulación de las propuestas, sino sobre todo en la implementación también de estas medidas que se logran a través de la participación de las mujeres. En ese sentido, la prevención de los conflictos y la consolidación de paz tiene que ver mucho con el cumplimiento de las medidas acordadas en el acuerdo de paz. Eh, estamos en un escenario eh, con un enfoque de género en el acuerdo de paz, un grupo de medidas de género muy importantes, eh, producto del trabajo del movimiento de mujeres del país, nada nos fue otorgado generosamente, cada una de las medidas fue lograda por el trabajo conjunto del movimiento de mujeres del país. Sin embargo, ese éxito, eh, porque creemos que es un éxito importante, eh, que hoy en día se traduce en 122 medidas eh, en el acuerdo de género, tiene retos importantes eh, en este momento del país. Quisiera indicar que para la consolidación de paz es importante que el Consejo de Seguridad incorpore en el seguimiento de su mandato estas medidas de género del acuerdo de paz. Solo así se puede prevenir nuevos conflictos, solo así se puede consolidar la paz. Y queremos que las medidas de género de, del acuerdo de paz no sean objeto de un seguimiento como algo complementario, como algo adicional. Quisiéramos un seguimiento central de las medidas de género del acuerdo de paz por parte del Consejo de Seguridad, eh, porque son las medidas que realmente van a facilitar una transformación sociocultural, no solo en el marco de una construcción general de paz, sino que van a permitir la transformación de condiciones históricas de discriminación y violencia contra las mujeres. A eso le han apuntado las medidas del acuerdo de paz. Por eso se previeron mecanismos para el acceso a tierras. Por eso se previeron medidas para garantizar mayores niveles de participación política en escenarios de justicia transicional, en escenarios de construcción de paz. 
Por eso también se pidieron medidas especiales de protección y garantía de las víctimas de violencia sexual en conflicto armado. Y en general, por eso se previeron todo este cúmulo de medidas para generar transformaciones de fondo. Sin embargo, tenemos estas, estas medidas en, en, en un contexto de, eh, colombiano en que eh, hay múltiples víctimas de violencia contra la mujer en el contexto del conflicto armado. Los registros oficiales desde 1985 dan cuenta de más de 10.000 mujeres víctimas de desplazamiento, más de 26.000 mujeres víctimas de violencia sexual en conflicto armado, más de 83.000 mujeres víctimas de desaparición forzada que se cree eh, es, eh, desde los estereotipos que es un tipo de victimización que no le ocurre a las mujeres, pues bien, aquí tenemos más de 83 mil mujeres desaparecidas forzadamente, más de 3 millones 800 mujeres víctimas de desplazamiento forzado, más de 400 mil mujeres víctimas de tortura y más de 2.600 víctimas de reclutamiento infantil como niñas. Estas son las condiciones que está enfrentando el acuerdo de paz a lo que debería dar respuesta al acuerdo de paz, las medidas de género, y no se está logrando. No se está logrando porque eh, a pesar de que el acuerdo de paz incorporó un enfoque diferencial para el acceso a tierras, como indicaba, para la creación de mecanismos de participación política y un enfoque de género en general para eh, la implementación de garantías de seguridad y para la justicia transicional, estas medidas eh, están siendo incumplidas hoy en día. Por eso es tan importante que el Consejo de Seguridad y que Irlanda nos ayude como integrante de este Consejo de Seguridad a incorporar en la agenda el seguimiento específico de las medidas de género que hoy en día, según nuestros estudios, eh, están en un proceso de desaceleración. Desaceleración que eh, está generando una ampliación de las brechas de desigualdad contra las mujeres. Y esto es preocupante para nosotras porque así no se consolida, no se previenen los conflictos que es el espíritu del mandato de Mujeres, Paz y Seguridad. En este seguimiento, eh, el Grupo de Género en la Paz, eh, que es un grupo de organizaciones que hace seguimiento a las medidas de género, ha eh, diagnosticado que a la fecha solamente están cumpliéndose 20 de las 122 medidas de género eh, creadas en el Acuerdo de Paz. Y eh, uno de los temas centrales también para el mandato de Mujeres, Paz y Seguridad, por supuesto, es el tema de violencia sexual, en el cual me quiero centrar en estos minutos restantes. Eh, no solo el Consejo de Seguridad eh, en las resoluciones de Mujeres, Paz y Seguridad ha insistido en la necesidad de poner fin, al a, fin al, a la violencia sexual en el contexto del conflicto armado y a la necesidad de garantizar el acceso a la justicia y cerrar la brecha de impunidad que existe en casos de violencia sexual, eh, sino que en el mandato del acuerdo de paz nosotras tenemos medidas específicas que logramos con instituciones para proteger a las víctimas de violencia sexual en el marco de la justicia transicional, se previeron garantías especiales en el procedimiento de justicia transicional que hoy en día no se están cumpliendo. Y por eso varias organizaciones 
de sociedad civil, una alianza que es la alianza cinco claves, que es una alianza de organizaciones que venimos trabajando en el tema de violencia sexual desde las negociaciones de La Habana, estamos solicitando a la Jurisdicción Especial para la Paz la apertura del caso nacional de violencia sexual, violencia reproductiva y las motivadas en la sexualidad de las víctimas. Una priorización que se hace muy importante para lograr el acceso a la justicia de las mujeres víctimas de violencia sexual en el contexto de justicia transicional que tenemos. Esto hoy en día no es una realidad y quisiera explicar por qué. Organizaciones como la nuestra, eh, Sisma Mujer, hace más de dos años, con recursos de la cooperación de Irlanda, eh, presentamos el primer informe eh, de violencia sexual a la Jurisdicción Especial para la Paz. Luego hemos venido presentando otros subsiguientes y a la fecha ninguno de estos casos está siendo tramitado, no tiene una ruta eh, para ser tramitado porque no está priorizada la violencia sexual. Solo si en algunos territorios de los casos abiertos hay algunos casos de violencia sexual se están conociendo pero no se está conociendo la generalidad de los casos de violencia sexual como sí se está conociendo eh, la generalidad de los casos de secuestro y de ejecuciones extrajudiciales. Nosotras creemos que por la gravedad y la representatividad de los casos de violencia sexual, de la eh, discriminación que subyace eh, en la violencia sexual en el conflicto contra las mujeres y contra las niñas, es absolutamente indispensable que la Jurisdicción Especial para la Paz abra un caso nacional de violencia sexual en el procedimiento, se priorice este caso y se permita el acceso a la justicia de las víctimas a quienes nuestras organizaciones de mujeres representan. Nosotras creemos, siguiendo los pronunciamientos de las Relatorías de Naciones Unidas, que la justicia transicional tiene una deuda muy importante en el enfoque de género. Esto es, un, esto es algo que ha sido reconocido a nivel internacional como una falla actual que tiene la justicia transicional, que se considera eh, que por ser un mecanismo de derechos humanos, de suyo tiene eh, estándares de enfoque de género. Sin embargo, esto no necesariamente es así, eh, como digo, el relator de derechos de las víctimas ha indicado que hay una deuda con las mujeres en la justicia transicional y creemos que entonces la apertura del caso nacional es indispensable para eh, superar eh, esa falencia de las justicias transicionales en el mundo. Creemos que en Colombia tenemos un cúmulo de medidas y de normas importantes que sustentan el desarrollo de ese enfoque de género. Es decir, las autoridades ya tienen las normas, los mecanismos para implementarlo, solo se necesita la decisión de abrir este caso para dar trámite a los hechos de violencia sexual en el marco del conflicto armado contra mujeres y contra niñas. Por eso quisiéramos tener el apoyo de Irlanda para garantizar que estos casos que hemos documentado con mucha dificultad con las mujeres en los territorios para eh, 
para, para presentarlos a la Jurisdicción Especial para la Paz sean realmente tramitados y se, y se eh, respalde esa confianza que las víctimas han puesto en la justicia. Yo les agradezco mucho con esas dos solicitudes puntuales. Eh, dejaría Thank por aquí. Thank you. Thank you so much, Linda. That was very good. Uh, and we'll actually come back to you uh, for questions. Uh, you know, you brought the whole area of uh, displaced people and you have given us even the numbers of, 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 the, of the girls as well and people who have been tortured. Um, and the need to implement uh, the mandates, which are already there in particular, uh, protecting women from sexual uh, violence. Uh, we had a problem with Horia, but I believe that Horia have joined us so far, and it will be very important actually to hear from her. So without wasting time, I invite Horia. She's our final panelist, and uh, Horia Musadi is an award-winning Afghan human rights defender with more than 20 years experience in human rights and journalism. She has worked as Amnesty International Afghanistan researcher, director of human rights research and advocacy consortium, media commissioner for Afghanistan election commission, senior advisor to Afghanistan independent human rights commission, as well as a journalist in Kabul and Islamabad. She has authored multiple research reports and scores of articles on human rights in Afghanistan with a focus on women's rights and has frequently been featured on high profile media outlets, including BBC World, CNN, and Al Jazeera. Holia, you're very much welcome. Sorry you had problems uh, getting into the Zoom, but you're welcome to make your remark. Thank you very much. Uh, I would like to thank you and also the organizers of this event. Again, I apologize for all these uh, technical issues. So uh, I would like to start with uh, a, quite a briefing, uh, a brief overview on the Afghanistan situation. As you may know, the peace talks between Taliban and USA, it started back in 2019. And following to that, uh, uh, like in February 2020, a peace deal was signed between uh, U.S. and the Taliban. So uh, that deal or that discussion opened uh, the door for opportunity that Afghanistan uh, would see uh, an end to the 40 years of conflict and atrocities that is happening in the country. And uh, more importantly, it was creating a unique opportunity that not only Afghan people, but also the Taliban and international community, as well as the Afghan government, they were all in the same page and they all wanted to have, uh, you know, some sorts of end uh, to the 40 years long bloodshed. Soon after the uh, Moscow uh, meeting happened uh, in February 2019, when Afghan leaders and Taliban uh, went to meet with each other, uh, Afghan women came together. Like, of course, Afghan women were before that, they were voicing a lot of support for a ceasefire, for peace talks, and, and for an end to the 40 years of conflict. But I think uh, that gave another opportunity for us as uh, the Afghan women, they really started uh, to uh, discuss about their red lines because knowing the Taliban era, living under the Taliban back in 1990s, 
and knowing that how their gender apartheid uh, rules would mean for Afghan women if there are any peace deal without any preconditions. So this is why the Afghan women came with those uh, as the number of uh, red lines uh, for the peace talks and, and the urge all the uh, uh, conflict parties to discuss these red lines and, and make sure that Afghan women rights are not uh, traded away. So uh, I think the biggest part of those uh, red lines that Afghans were talking about was uh, the achievements of the past uh, 20 years in Afghanistan, particularly in terms of the uh, women's access to education, access to political participation, freedom of expression, movement, social, cultural, and economic rights. They were all among those red lines that uh, many women have discussed and, and we were uh, talking about it. And at the same time, we did a lot of advocacy and lobbying. But unfortunately, when US and Taliban peace deal happened, it not only sidelined the Afghan government, but there was no mention of human rights, women rights, or, or any other uh, fundamental rights that Afghans were really advocating and, and uh, they wanted those rights and democratic values to be uh, guaranteed. Uh, and again, when the intra-Afghan peace talks uh, started last year in uh, September, after the release of over uh, 5,000 Taliban prisoners, uh, some of them suspected war criminals. Again, uh, women's participation were uh, like it was hanging on a stick because what we did, we were really trying hard with the Afghan government to make sure that women are playing a decision-making role, not just to participate, not just as someone to go uh, with the, you know, with the delegations, but we really wanted a seat on the table, and we wanted these women to to represent us, represent our rights and concerns, uh, and speak with the Taliban and uh, with the other uh, uh, stakeholders involved in that. So, uh, luckily, we have like four uh, strong women who are representing Afghan women uh, in the peace talks, but. Uh, also, from the other hand, we did not have much progress uh, in intra-Afghan peace talks, and there have been a lot of uh, pull and push factors, and uh, particularly Taliban did not show any interest in uh, progressing in, in, in the peace talks, and that was simply because U.S. announced that they will withdraw all the military troops by uh, September 11, and then the other international uh, uh, military troops that were operating under NATO, they also decided to leave Afghanistan uh, more or less uh, around the same time. So uh, that uh, gave the uh, opportunity for the Taliban to uh, not really get much interest into the peace talks because they believed that they would win militarily uh, and they can control the country. So uh, despite uh, Taliban using the PR in, in the international arena, and, and we can really see that uh, with, uh, mm, I would say with disbelief that even many Western politicians, including some from the Scandinavian countries, they are uh, coming in, in, in the belief that Taliban have changed and they are talking about women's rights, they are talking about women's inclusion in, in, in the, a future of uh, the government if Taliban are part of that. But unfortunately, the realities in the ground are very much different. 
Yeah, most recently, Taliban took control of several districts in Kunduz province of Afghanistan. And soon after they took the control, they started issuing a number of code of conducts for the residents, including putting restrictions on women's movement. They clearly said that women are not allowed to leave their homes without a justified reason, such as going to see a doctor. And again, if a woman needs to go and seek a medical uh, assistance, they need to be accompanied by a male family member. And then it went on and again, you know, in uh, several other locations where Taliban took control, they started urging all the shopkeepers to not to sell any good to any woman who is coming to buy food from them. And uh, only if a woman is accompanied by a man, and if a man is uh, doing the dealing rather than women themselves. So uh, what is really at this moment is concerning for us when the international community is just trying to pack up and, and they are in, in some way, they are, they are uh, preparing to leave Afghanistan and uh, uh, Afghan people behind. So uh, the rights of women are really, uh, I, I would say like, like it is hanging on balance. We really, we don't know what will happen after uh, September, because at the moment we are seeing the escalation of conflict, the deterioration of security uh, situation across Afghanistan, and also a significant increase in the number of targeted killings against uh, human rights defenders, civil society activists, and also media workers across Afghanistan. Uh, after, soon after the peace deal between US and Taliban started, Till now, the organization that I'm representing, Safety and Risk Mitigation Organization, which is mostly working with the human rights defenders at risk, we have uh, documented like in 2020, around 18 human rights defenders, civil society activists were killed. More than seven journalists were killed and they were all in act of targeted killings. We had the most uh, shocking attack on a maternity hospital in west of Kabul. And just uh, like several weeks ago, we had twin bomb attacks on a girls' school in, in, in Kabul. So uh, this all really puts our uh, a kind of our faith into the willingness of the Taliban that how do you treat women? And at the same time for the international support is really a, a, a big question for us. Because um, even in 2020, what we have seen, uh, female judges were killed, uh, female doctors were killed, female police officers were killed. Again, uh, female uh, uh, members of the civil society and human rights community were killed. And everything happened and, and they were killed and there are several other attacks, threats and intimidations without any accountability, without any uh, justice. And, and the victims are still waiting to see if, if there will be any, any, any form of justice in those situations. Like we know Taliban keep publicly denying their involvement in, into such attacks, but looking at the footprint that they have left in the past, looking at their record that how they were attacking journalists and they were publicly claiming for that, looking at the way that they were attacking women and women human rights defenders. So it leaves us with no doubt to see that definitely maybe if not for all those attacks, but for the majority of those attacks, Taliban would be responsible. And um, at the same time, 
I think what is really important that for the uh, like United Nations or for the Security Council to really ask this question that how they can make sure that Taliban, whatever they are talking at the international level, they are sticking with that even in action and not only in words. So that could be done through some demonstrated commitments. So uh, for example, we want to really see that when Taliban say that they will not have any problem with the girls' education. We want to see how many girls' schools have been reopened in the areas under their control. How many women civil servants, women members of the NGOs are able to attend and work and, and continue with their uh, daily uh, business uh, in that. And we want to see like, uh, sorry. Uh, we want to really see like uh, how these women like uh, being treated in the, in the areas under the control of the uh, Taliban. So for that reason, uh, I think it is really important uh, for the United Nations and uh, you know uh, for uh, other stakeholders to make sure that you know they do much more to, to hold Taliban to account. And for that reason, like I would like to end my speech with with uh, some recommendations, like. UN Secretary General, sorry, the Security Generals in June report on Afghanistan highlighted that the work that civil society in Afghanistan has continued to do is to create a better place. This is despite the prevailing insecurity and experience, and as noted in that report, in the face of ongoing violence and exclusion of their voices from formal political places and debating in the future. So for that reason, what we are really looking and what we are really asking is that there have to be a safe environment for the civil society to participate in all aspects of the peace and, and uh, all aspects of peace process in Afghanistan and their concerns and priorities must be heard and, and, um, and, and it must be taken into consideration, I would say. And at the same time, you know, like um, what we really know, like UNAMA, which is playing a, a big role in Afghanistan since uh, 2002, like we would like to see more power to the UNAMA. We would like to see that UNAMA is playing much more role in terms of overseeing uh, the uh, peace process and to also make sure that, you know, the rights and, and, and uh, uh, like uh, like the rights of uh, human rights of Afghans are really respected and uh, protected in these uh, peace talks, but at the same time, like they should have a much more a stronger mandate to uh, effectively enable the civil society participation and guarantee their safety. UNAMA has access to all, uh, you know, they have access to the Taliban, they have access to the Afghan government and to the international community, and, and we believe that they have much stronger voice to speak about that. Like at, this, at the moment, UNAMA is playing a very important role in uh, even with the human rights defenders uh, situation. And we had in a number of occasions, their intervention to uh, secure and safeguard some of the human rights defenders where they were under threats. But we really want to see that these, uh, you know, member states should create uh, you know, a safe and enabling environment for the civil society and uh, uh, including formal and informal community for women leaders, 
women peace builders, political actors, and human rights defenders to be able to carry out their work independently and without any interference. So uh, at the same time, I want to also, again, re-emphasize on the recommendations that was done by the Afghanistan Independent Human Rights Commission that the UN Secretary General must establish and a special inquiry into the situation of Afghanistan and crimes committed against Afghan civilians, including deliberate attacks against women and girls in whatever form they are, they must be investigated. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Horia. I didn't feel like I want to stop you because Lira, it's very interesting, but also very horrifying to hear about the situation of women and girls in Afghanistan. Uh, you, you've actually explained it very well, you know, the issues of abuse and attack on women, uh, human rights actually not being taken seriously and all what is happening. But you've also given us very concrete key actions that you would want to see uh, being uh, supported, you know, by Ireland, you know, with its role now. And uh, I want to thank all the speakers because now we have come to the end of the uh, speaker speaking. Uh, you have actually contributed all of you very well and you have brought many issues together you know whether it's in relation to issues of gender issues of participation of women access to justice implementation of mandates like we've had but we'll go straight to questions because we don't have much time um and actually i'm going to to ask the questions uh, the first question i'll pose it to i think uh, Madarin. um so I'll actually pose it to Madeline, but it's any panelist can answer. What can an elected member state like Thailand do to have a meaningful impact in advancing the implementation of the Women, Peace and Security Agenda? Madeline? Uh, you know, I think that we've, we've looked at many of the things that they can do. I mean, one is looking again absolutely at the mandates that are given. That's that, that can be done within the Security Council. And the member states should agree with this because it's language they've already agreed. So where is the, the big deal in making sure that those are in the country specific mandates and are acted upon in the way in which I described? Can I just divert a little bit because I think this is hugely significant because um, I see there's a question on, on the military responses. Afghanistan is a prime example of when you try and militarize a peace process to the fact that there's act their actual combatants and you now are being stuck within their compounds. The UN Security Council should go and have a country visit to Afghanistan and bring the parties together, not envoys, bring the Security Council, bring the parties together. That's in the charter. They can do this. And then guarantee the decisions that are made by the parties, including the women parties, because there are so many recommendations that women have put forward. We, can, we keep on being reactive to the forces of violence instead of actually using the UN as a peace organization to say this must stop and we will guarantee how this will stop. And if it does not stop, these are the mechanisms we have under the charter to hold you accountable for your failure to deliver on this peace that we are brokering. And the lesson from, I think, from Northern Ireland more than any other is that it's a process. It takes a long time. And one thing, I see a transitional justice, um, a truth and reconciliation. Yes, it can help. There wasn't one in Bosnia and it was a complete catastrophe what has happened there subsequently. So what we need is to be proactive in saying, this is how we design the future. This is what law says. This is where we have the abilities within the multilateral system. This is what we need in country. And it's got to be coming from the bottom up to inform us that we protect in a way which is absolutely responsive 
through those who are most in need of the rights that they already have but are not delivered on. So I think we've really got to think way more progressively. And I think Ireland can, can really get in there and be strong in standing up for what has already been agreed under international law. And it's just at the moment, the abuse of the system in order to further geopolitical agendas is what is really going on. And part of that is due to a militarization project which earns huge amounts of money for the five permanent members in the council and in any other organization, we would say, what a conflict of interest. How can they do peace and security and bring peace, really sustainable peace, when they want, uh, they want markets for their weapons, for their trainers, for their counterterrorism, and all the stuff that goes with that? So I think you know, there's so many things that can be said about this that we've really got to yeah. come to grips with so much of that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Madeline. And I just want actually to pose the same question to Onya. Having listened uh, to all the, you know, women who have actually given input, women on the ground, uh, and you mentioned earlier that you also, you know, like, I think you have connections with countries like Mari. So having listened to those women, do you have any response that you can give based on that same, same question? That goes to Onya. Thank you very much indeed, Salome. And I have to say, it's been a wonderful afternoon listening to these experiences and, and taking, uh, you know, taking the knowledge back with us. So thank you very much to all the presenters as well. Um, yeah, I think, you know, uh, listening particularly around Mali and the Sahel, and, and, and this is an area that, uh, you know, we are very interested in and working on. And I know that it's a complex and challenging area. And uh, it's, you know, I feel also that the impact on insecurity on women and girls is particularly devastating, as was outlined by Asiat. So, and her request there was really about protection. It was about having, um, you know, I can never pronounce these acronyms, you know, MINUSCA, um, actually looking after and protecting the girls that are there, looking at the internal displacements that's happening and looking for Ireland to give more humanitarian development aid in relation to it. And it is actually an area where we have been trying to do um, some work at the council as well. And again, as, um, as co-penholder um, with Niger on the, on the UN Office for West Africa and the Sahel in particular, we've advanced language on WPS in the, U in the Security Council's presidential statement on peace con consolidation in West Africa. So that's back in February um, 2020. One, I think it was. And then we successively advocated for the inclusion of references to the role of women in prevention and resolution of conflicts as well, with specific references again to WPS resolutions um, for full, equal and meaningful participation. Um, also, um, Minusma, you know, I think it was uh, yesterday that the, the, the mandate was renewed again and we managed to um, get some strong language in there again. Uh, we strengthened the WPS language throughout the mandate, including on women's full, equal and meaningful participation in the political transition and on MINUSMA's mandate to support services for survivors of sexual violence, including sexual and reproductive health, medical, social, psychosocial and economic and legal supports. So we have been doing that, but there's an awful lot more to do. And, and I, I certainly benefit from these conversations where we are, as they say, getting first-hand experience of what's actually happening on the ground. And... I do take it as well. Madeline was talking there about, you know, the Security Council visiting these countries. And I, I think, you know, that is, you know, that is a really good idea. I think the difficulty has been in the last 15 months has been COVID, um, you know, related in that it hasn't, it hasn't been easy to, to get to these countries. But um, I, I do think nothing beats being on the ground and seeing exactly what's happening there. And the other thing that struck me coming right across all of them was it's one thing having the language in the mandates 
uh, and really strengthening it. And that's really, really good. But is the accountability to those mandates? And, and I think for us, when you look at the role of the IEG, where it brings up each of these countries before the mandates coming down the line. So, so civil society has that opportunity to input, uh, you know, to say these are the issues of concern in the country, particularly national civil society um, that's there, has that opportunity to bring those issues up to the council so that when we're looking at the mandates, we know, you know, what's not working and then trying to make the accountability. Again, with the ARIA formula meeting, um, around UN-led peace processes. Again, really, really strong um, sort of coming from the IEG groups there as well and ourselves to say, you know, you have to lead by example. And it's making them accountable. It's it's when this UN um, envoy for a region stands up in front of the Security Council to give a report on a country theme. It's asking these questions. And it's also remembering what you asked the last time <laughs> to make sure, mm. you know, that it doesn't, as I think it was Madeline said it, like it goes into the ether. And, and it's important that that mm. doesn't happen. So there's this this sort of, if you like, um, accountability and tracking of what was said, what was asked and what was done. Uh, and it's about capturing it and claiming it and then communicating that back out again, I think, which is really important. But um, Ireland has been doing quite a lot of funding into the Sahel region as well. It's a key, key focus for um, our development aid programme. And we're also working with um, IRC in Mali as well, um, and particularly looking at young, wing, young women and girls and the impact that the conflict um, has had on them there. So I hope that answers some of the questions. I know I could go on forever yeah. and, and uh, there's a lot more that has come up. And I'd like to thank our um, uh, colleague from Afghanistan as well. I think it's really good to hear what's happening there uh, mm -hmm. and the concerns that they have for both, you know, the the withdrawal of U.S. troops in September, but also her request that UNAMA do more about the accountability and protection levels as well. Um, and and in Colombia, as um, Linda has mentioned, um, Irish Aid has been assisting um, the organizations there, but it's still a lot more to, to be done. Thanks, Salome. Thank you so much, Onya. I'm conscious of time and I'm going to move to the next question. Uh, speaker have spoken about the importance of uh, better including local women voices. We are actually asking the panel, or the panel is asked comment on strategies for ensuring these voices are better heard in the UN and other multilateral institutions. Uh, we are also asking what mechanism are in place or could be enhanced to ensure the issues faced by local women are not overlooked in implementation. I was actually going to ask uh, Asitan uh, from Mali um, if you can be able to maybe respond to this question. Yeah. Important um, of better including local women voices. Yes. Okay. Can you hear me? Can yes. you hear me, Salome? Yes, I can hear you. Yes. Okay. I have two suggestions. One is a higher and better women participation in peace talk at the community level through ongoing social dialogue and inclusion in all structure likely to interact with high, high, um, authorities and UN and other multilateral uh, institutions. That's one venue. And as of the mechanism in place that should include the coalition of conflict survivors, you know, and community-based NGOs who are active uh, on the ground and dealing with conflict and peace issues. That's the two suggestions I have. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Asitan, for that. Uh, can we have Linda answer the same question? Me puedes repetir, por favor. No escuché. Okay, sorry, I Okay, the question um, is speakers have spoken important of better including local women voices. Can they can she comment on strategies for ensuring these voices are better heard in the UN and other multinational institutions? and other mechanisms are in place or, or could be enhanced to ensure issues raised by local women are not overlooked in the implementation. It's really the whole participation of women on the ground, importance of including local women voices. Gracias. Um, sí, yo creo que el acceso a la participación es fundamental para garantizar realmente eh, la efectivización de los derechos de las mujeres. Hoy estamos, por ejemplo, en un escenario en que tenemos medidas de género, pero la mayoría de las decisiones sobre el cumplimiento de esas medidas no las toman mujeres y yo creo que ahí hay una gran eh, falla y una gran explicación de por qué no se están cumpliendo las medidas de género, el acuerdo de paz, entre otros factores. Creemos que... La garantía efectiva es con, con mínimos, eh, estableciendo mínimos de participación en todas las instancias eh, de, de decisión, incluidos los, los, las, las instancias, por supuesto, de Naciones Unidas, en que creo que debe hacerse un mayor esfuerzo por garantizar la participación en la, de las mujeres en los escenarios de toma de decisiones. Eh, tenemos que lograr que eh, Naciones Unidas incorpore eh, en su personal eh, mayor cantidad de mujeres que influyan y que determinen los derechos eh, que conciernen a nosotras. Esta es una garantía efectiva eh, y a nivel local también creemos que el cumplimiento y la supervisión a las leyes de cuotas que tenemos es un mínimo, realmente es poco, eh, pero, pero es un mínimo que no está siendo ni siquiera cumplido. Entonces creo que una mayor vigilancia eh, sobre las leyes de cuotas, sobre los mecanismos de cuotas, en el último informe eh, 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 de, de la resolución 1325 de Naciones Unidas, se indica que en los países con conflicto armado o que han tenido conflicto armado, eh, las, las, los niveles de participación de las mujeres en la toma de decisiones son mejores en aquellos en que al menos existe un, eh, una, una ley de cuotas en algunos sectores. En nuestro país, por ejemplo, no está siendo cumplida en este momento la ley de cuotas. Tenemos una falencia en el gobierno en relación con la participación de las mujeres en los ministerios, eh, que son quienes definen las políticas. Entonces, una mayor vigilancia y mayor, mayor solicitud de información sobre por qué no se están cumpliendo estos mínimos para hacerlas extensivas a todas las instancias eh, de, de, de definición de políticas de las mujeres en el Estado. Thank you. Thank you so much, Aria, for that. Um, and I just actually want to, I'm, I'm conscious of time as well. I want to pose a question to Madeline. Uh, is the over-reliance on military response a primary issue Putting back the WPS agenda from truly progressing. Madeline? Yes. 
the short answer. And I think that this is why we really fundamentally think, where are the peace builders? Uh, they're not men with guns. Every single one of you has experienced what happens when you have men with guns. You have more men with guns to protect women against other men. How ridiculous is that? We really need to have peace building from community level, changing the dynamics of the inequalities that exist because this is patriarchy. We're still we're having this conversation in 100 years unless we address the issues that come up through patriarchy again and again. And that means gender equality. I mean, gender, not just the gender binary. So there's a lot of work to be done. But unless we have that as our ultimate goal, we will still be having this conversation in 100 years because there are more guns out there, new weapons being developed. And as that happens, so we are more at risk. So we have to really be uh, holding feet to the fire, as it were, in terms of being able to change the dynamics. And it's certainly not through more guns with more men in uniforms. They are not friendly to peace. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Madeline, for that. I think we have come to the end of um, this webinar, and I hope all of you have uh, really benefited. And I go back to the point of uh, Madeline, what you have actually uh, said that there in, in your very last words of the patriarchy society, because male hegemony, gender inequality, power dynamic and imbalances are at, at are at the root of violence and has to be addressed. So we have little to talk about issues of gender equality. And I leave you with a quote of the Secretary General actually in his um, report uh, last year. Gender inequality remains the overwhelming injustice of our age and the biggest human rights challenge we face. So we really have to talk about this even when we are talking about issues of women, peace and security. We've heard about all the issues uh, the issues of language, the issues of mandate, accountability, the military, the arms, and uh, you know the need leader to support um, you know countries like we are talking who have actually presented to us today, the Afghanistan, the Mali, and the Colombia that they really need support. And Ireland have the opportunity to be able to make a difference in the lives of these uh, countries, you know, by the seat that they have on the Security Council and by voicing the issues from the ground or what is affecting the women from the ground. So from me, as a leader, to thank all of you, our speakers, uh, all of them, for their presentation and what they have actually given us, Onya, Madeline, Holia, Aston, and Linda, and to the organizers of today, Irish Peace and Conflict Net Network. And a reminder that this webinar was organized by the Irish Peace and Conflict Network. And for you to learn more about the work of the network or to join, uh, or even actually to know about the future event, you can please contact again uh, the, the network itself and the, their email is on the chat so you can get that. Um, so you can share your details uh, you know, on the chat and you can actually also get the details of the Gmail for the, for the network itself. So thank you everyone uh, for, for your participation. And for your commitment, you know, committing time to this, uh, we will actually be sharing maybe the recording of this. Uh, and it's again to thank the organizers and all the speakers. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Merci beaucoup. Thanks, everyone. Thank Wonderful you. To see you. Thanks.